0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Of the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our heritage.org website on all of these occasions. We would ask our in-house guests to make sure that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off as a special courtesy. And, of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Hosting our guest today is Thomas Callender. Thomas is our Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs in the Center for National Defense. Before joining us here at Heritage, he served for five years as Director of Capabilities in the Office of the Deputy undersecretary of the Navy. He previously worked as a Senior Maritime Analyst for X Systems and as a Senior Strategic Consultant for Toffler Associates. And prior to that, he served for 20 years in the United States Navy as a submarine officer Please join me in welcoming Tom Collender.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, thank you for joining me here this afternoon and welcoming the United States Coast Guard's 25th Commandant, Admiral Paul Zunkoff, to discuss America's Coast Guard, a national asset for security and prosperity. The Coast Guard has a wide range of national responsibilities, including combating national Transnational organized crime, facilitating maritime commerce and securing America's port, preserving our national sovereignty and protecting critical infrastructure, protects and defends over 100,000 miles of U.S. coastland and inland waterways and safeguards the largest exclusive economic zone in the world. The urgent need for a more modern and larger Coast Guard fleet is only increasing due to the rapidly evolving maritime security environment, which places an escalating strain on the U.S. Coast Guard's limited resources. In order to fulfill its motto of Semper Paratus, always ready, Congress must provide Coast Guard with sufficient and steady funding to build and maintain the 21st century Coast Guard. As Commander of the Coast Guard, Admiral Zunkoff leads the largest component of the Department of Homeland Security, composed of 88,000 personnel, including active-duty, reserve, Civilian and Volunteer Auxiliaries. Previously, Admiral Zunkoff served as Commander Coast Guard Pacific Area where he was Operational Commander for all U.S. Coast Guard missions in an area encompassing more than 74 million square miles and provided mission support to the Department of Defense and Combatant Commanders. He served in other various flag assignments. Specifically highlighted in 2010, Admiral Zunkoff served as the federal on-scene coordinator for the Deepwater Horizon Spill of National Significance redirected more than 47,000 responders, 6,500 vessels, and 120 aircraft during the largest oil spill in U.S. history. Please join me in welcoming Admiral Paul Zimko.
2: Thank you, Tom, and I want to thank uh, those of you gathered gather here this afternoon. Uh, as, as we talk a little bit about a service that I have been very fond of for the past 45 years of, of my life. Um, but what I thought I'd start with, and just provide you a little bit of context, uh, when I was uh, confirmed to be Commandant and became Commandant back in May of 2014, uh, we looked at you know our service and where were we going as a service. And uh, if you really want to find out how we're go- doing as a service, you go to the chief's mess, you pour a cup of coffee, and you say, how are we doing? And you listen. And they say, well, we used to be a service that does more with less, but now we're doing everything with nothing. Um, and so I took that sound bite and I really critically assessed, you know, how we function as a service. And what we do is we receive a budget, um, which comes in maybe below President's guidance. Uh, we testify and say we are pleased with the President's budget, um, and, and then we decide what do we do with it. Uh, how do we put together a strategy? So, so we take a budget that didn't have a strategy horse in front of it. Um, it was the cart onto itself. So the first thing we did is we need, a, we need to be a service where strategy drives the budget. It can't just be any strategy. It's got to be a relevant strategy. So what was happening in 2014? Uh, in 2014, we had unprecedented numbers of unaccompanied minors arriving at the southwest border. And as the Department of Homeland Security is dealing with detention facilities and how do we accommodate this overwhelming number of people entering the country, I asked the question, why? Why are they leaving their countries of origin, particularly Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador? Um, So I went down and I met with the presidents of all three of those countries. And each one of them said, we are a victim of our geography. We live just to the north of the largest drug-producing country in the world, and Colombia. And then we live just to the south of the largest drug-consuming country in the world, and that is your country, Commandant. Um, And so the first thing we did, uh, we also said we're going to have intelligence drive our operations. We have 11 statutory missions, and then we try to resource them all equally, spread the butter far, thin, and wide. We said we need to start stacking the butter, and we need to start stacking it in the Western Hemisphere. We need to stack it off the coast of these countries. And so we put together a Western Hemisphere strategy. But before we did that, we worked with the Department of Homeland Security that also put together their strategy. We worked with the White House. In fact, when the White House strategy for Central America came out, coincidentally, ours arrived the next day, uh, which really is the implementation piece, but also the metrics that go with it. Um, It also happened at a time as the national defense and national military strategies were very focused on Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and violent extremism, excluded in that narrative what's what's happening in South and Central America. When I met with President um, Hernandez in Honduras in 2014, uh, they were the murder capital of the world. Violence that exceeded that of Iraq at the height of the insurgency back in 2005. And so we pulled ships from other theaters, and we stacked them on the coasts of these countries. We have 41 bilateral agreements. Authorities that reach into the territorial seas of these nations allow the United States, under the flag of the United States Coast Guard, to enforce law in their waters. And so we did that. And then a year later, I again met with President Hernandez, and their murder rate had dropped by 40%. I said, well, what happened? He goes, well, when you put up the sea shield. He called it a sea shield. Um, we, We positioned Coast Guard cutters off the Honduran rise, and we were interdicting the bulk shipments of cocaine that would land in Honduras, that would corrupt law enforcement, that would cause violent crime, that would cause people to leave their homes, and it stopped. Uh, So the drug stopped, and the good news is crime went down. The bad news is the cartel sponsoring that moved to Costa Rica. Um, But we saw the direct correlation uh, between security, security at sea, security on shore, and then with that security comes prosperity as well. Very difficult to get the IMF, the International Money Fund and others to make investments in countries that are high in crime and also high in corruption as well. So if you can get at the root causes of that, uh, it gives these countries an opportunity. So Western Hemisphere, strategy driving budget. Uh, We then received uh, the award for offshore patrol cutters, uh, for the first nine of those as we modernized the fleet. 2014, we thought we would get six out of a program of record of eight national security cutters. Um, In the next budgets, uh, we're now up to 11. Uh, We needed to build patrol boats. We had 37 on contract, we now have 58. So we're modernizing the fleet. So let's shift theaters and let's look north. Uh, We have a fourth coast and it's called the Arctic coast. We have the Atlantic Pacific, the Gulf. We have another coast opening up and that's up in the Arctic as well. Uh, In one month, Russia launched more icebreakers than the United States has launched in the last 40 years. Russia has now laid claim Um, to the North Pole and most of the Arctic Ocean. Uh, We're seeing more and more participation by other nations that are not Arctic nations up in the Arctic as well. And in fact, the U.S. Coast Guard, working with NOAA and others, have uh, gone through the protocols under the Law of the Sea Convention to map out our extended continental shelf that goes beyond 200 miles. It's an area about the size of the state of Texas. It's enormous. And we're seeing other nations doing historic research, repeated research, in this very same a- area. So what's significant about that? On well, 2014, Brent crude was trading at $110 a barrel. Today, it's right at about $65 a barrel. It is not economically feasible to extract oil in the Arctic today. But one third of the world's natural gas and about 15% of the world's oil is I would call it in strategic reserve up in the Arctic. And much of that is in our portion of – in our EEZ and in our extended continental shelf. And again, maybe not ripe for exploitation today due to financial concerns, but what are we doing about it tomorrow? When you have countries like China that are playing the long game – actually, they play a game called Go. It was invented about 2,500 years ago. We're playing checkers. Um, And so they're looking at the long term, and we're thinking short term. Uh, we're seeing more and more activity. And in 2020, Russia will be launching two icebreakers that are really warships. Um, and meanwhile, we've been writing a lot of policy and posture papers. Uh, you cannot enforce sovereignty with paper. Um, and at the same time, it's very difficult to you know, exert maritime governance when you are one of four countries. Um, we are have a common interest with Iran, Libya, North Korea, the United States. What do all four countries have in common? You're scratching your head. Four countries that have not ratified the Law of the Sea Convention. So if we want to exert rules of behavior and maritime governance in the Arctic, uh, it is in our best interest to ratify the Law of the Sea Convention as well. Um, And then let's shift gears, and then let's look at the natural lay of the land of the United States of America. Uh, Any other country on any other continent would look from outer space and say, this is not fair. You know, the United States does not play on a level playing field because we have we have rivers that run east-west, north-south, and they connect to deep water ports. And so you can take grain out of the nation heartland and put it into the inland river system and push it out of deep water port, and it never has to get on a rail car. It doesn't have to get in a truck. And in fact it's a $4.6 trillion enterprise. What's significant about that is we maintain this inland highway, if you will, with a fleet of ships whose average age is 56 years old. We knew we need to replace these. We needed to modernize them. We couldn't answer the question why. $4.6 trillion, that's why. For less than $25 million a ship, you modernize this fleet, and you keep this lifeline, this economic lifeline, if you will, vibrant. And then we looked at another domain, it's called cyber. Uh, And this is a game that has clearly no end to it. Uh, There are no rules to entry, and quite honestly, many countries don't play by the rules. We do. Uh, We put out a cyber strategy, but we looked at it from three different lenses, if you will. The first is, we need to protect our cyber domain. The United States Coast Guard, we're a military service. And we operate on the Department of Defense Information Network. We don't want to be the soft underbelly to the Department of Defense, uh, where just in the course of this discussion we have today, there will literally be thousands of attempts, tens of thousands, I would, would speculate, attempts to break into our networks. So one, we need to protect it. Two, we need to be able to use cyber offensively. And for the Coast Guard, we use it offensively Within the, interna- within the intelligence spectrum. Uh, last year, we were tracking 6 GoFast boats not much bigger than this countertop here, uh, that were dispersed over area, an area greater than the size of the entire continent of North America. Yet we were able to put planes on top and ships next to and seize all six of these because all of this was cyber-enabled. Uh, you might see a white Coast Guard ship with a red stripe. They're really pretty. Um, but it's what's inside that really makes this work. We are able to leverage everything that is in the spectrum to go after adversaries. And so while it's great that you're modernizing this fleet and you're modernizing aircraft and we're bringing on aerial systems and we're upgrading our cyber systems, I would say those are secondary to what is primary. And, and what is primary for me is what are we doing to modernize the force? How do you recruit? How do you train? And more importantly, how do you retain this workforce? Believe it or not, in 2014, I was approached by the first sea lord of the Royal Navy. Uh, and it was a little bit like a press gang. Uh, he said, we're, we're in a little bit of a dilemma here in his you know, perfect British accent. Um, what had happened 15 years prior to that is the Royal Navy, to, to balance the budget, they stopped new accessions. And fifteen years go by and they're senior technicians, they're machinists, electricians, they're not in inventory. And their main propulsion systems, auxiliary systems, very similar to what we operate in the Coast Guard. They were on the verge of having to mothball ships because they didn't have the crews to man them. So we have forty members right now on three-year orders serving in the Royal Navy, so they don't have to tie their ships up. But when we signed the agreement, and our folks are really – I mean, they – it's an experience of a lifetime. It's a win-win for the UK. It's a win-win for the United States and the United States Coast Guard. But it made me think back. If I couldn't even envision having this conversation 100 years ago, where the Royal Navy would come to the United States and say, we need your help, because at that time, the world's hegemon and maritime the Royal Navy Fleet, where the sun never set on the Royal Navy. Back then, they were numero uno. And what happened 100 years later? We have to ask ourselves that very same question today. Where will we be as a maritime nation 100 years from now? We participate in the Rim of the Pacific exercise. It's the biggest maritime exercise in the world. Um, And it's a United States national security cutter that leads one of the surface action groups with China falling in behind us. And I tell others, there could be a possibility that 100 years from now, uh, we will send you know, three or four of our ships to join the largest maritime exercise in the world, led by the PLA Navy out of Shanghai. It's a possibility. Uh, because the final thing that I look at is, where are we going to be fiscally in the next six to eight years? Uh, We have a growing deficit, we have an aging population, and if nothing changes, if GDP growth remains the same, interest rates remain the same, in 2026, to service our nation's debt, we're talking about an $834 billion non-discretionary allocation at a point in time where there's going to be increasing competition for discretionary funding, but there's going to be more non-discretionary taken off the top medical care, and the like as well. So how do you compete in that environment when dollars are even harder to come by? So in order to do that, another piece of this was opening up our books uh, to a third-party auditor, and we now have our fifth consecutive clean financial audit opinion. You want to be a responsible broker of taxpayer dollars. Our acquisition programs across all product lines were in 1% to 2% annualized growth across every product line. We're delivering new ships on time, on budget, uh, that don't meet, they exceed our operational requirements. So you want to make sure that you are a good return on investment, that you are relevant to what the security risks are to the United States, and more importantly, that, that you are stewards of public trust. And if you were to ask me what is the one thing you lose sleep over on any given night, it would be the loss of public trust. You know, you can lose public trust with a a cadet at our Coast Guard Academy uh, doing immature things that sometimes young adults do. I just talked to our leaders at our Coast Guard Academy. On the other hand, it could be a senior leader in our Coast Guard, the most egregious yet. You know, if we are involved in fraudulent activities as senior leaders, yet telling our junior members, you know, you must abide by our core values of honor, respect, devotion to duty, we have public trust. We have got tremendous people at our Coast Guard Academy, at Cape May, New Jersey, where our recruits first enter the Coast Guard, half of them have been to college. In fact, on any given recruit company, eight or nine of them have master's degrees to be an E-2 in the United States Coast Guard. Uh, In in my 41 years of active service since leaving the academy, uh, this is the best Coast Guard I have seen in my time in uniform. And the good news is it's only getting better. So I'll leave you with that high note, and I really look forward to hearing what's on your mind and and having an open and frank dialogue. So again, Tom and Heritage Foundation, uh, thank you for allowing me to spend some time with you today. Thank you.
0: Thank you for those wonderful remarks uh, there. And I mean, you laid out some uh, very massive challenges across a broad spectrum of mission sets um, in there. Uh, and in light of those multiple challenges you see um, and ever increasing missions for the Coast Guard as, as the environment changes, uh, what do you see as the greatest challenge if you had to pick one facing the Coast Guard you know, and your successor, Admiral Schultz, over the next several years?
2: Yeah. Well, we've done great on the uh, acquisition side, and certainly 2018 literally takes the Coast Guard into uncharted territory, um, the best budget we have had since 1790. Um, so it's great that you're bringing new platforms you know, into inventory and then deploying them in the air and onto the water. Uh, what we are not doing a well enough job at is the out-year sustainment cost. Uh, there is a real cost in maintaining these new systems. So when the Budget Control Act was passed in 2011 through 2017, we have the distinction of being the only armed service to each year be funded below the Budget Control Act floor. And most of that was felt when it comes to our operations and maintenance account. People are in that account as well. Billets were cut. Civilians weren't hired. Our shore infrastructure backlog continued to grow to the point where it was literally going to crumble. Um, So that's the next area where we need to go. And I've told in multiple hearings uh, we need 5 percent annualized growth in our operation and expense account. Our entire budget uh, won't even buy you a Ford aircraft carrier. Uh, So one line item in the DOD budget uh, more than funds the entire U.S. Coast Guard. We're not asking for a whole lot here. Um, but 5% annualized growth in our operations and maintenance account, and then a floor of $2 billion in our acquisition account. There will be minor spikes if we're building, bringing a new ship, a new product online uh, in a given year, but on average, a, a floor of $2 billion adjusted for inflation buys us icebreakers, buys us this inland fleet, buys us unmanned aerial systems, and, and it does it along a timeline. Uh, that also looks at the fact that we don't want to hit a train wreck every 30, 40 years where all of these new systems that you've brought online are going to expire, and then you've got to start the process all over again. We've been doing this for a while. Uh, not a huge ask, uh, but it's what we are asking for. Thank you, sir.
0: Um, as you talked about the uh, the Arctic in there and the disproportionate uh, you know, territorial claims that Russia continues to make uh, that exceed international uh, maritime law, and now, as, as you touched upon, the you know the new construction of the Ivan Papanin heavy icebreaker, uh, and you know these combat icebreakers that, you know, according to some reports, will be equipped with land attack anti ship cruise uh, cruise missiles. So this militarization of the Arctic, um, you know, how do you view that, and how does the Coast Guard uh, look to respond to this change of the Arctic?
2: Yeah. So we uh, – in 2016, we stood up a, an integrated program office uh, you know, with with the Navy, uh, led by Sean Stackley, now with Hondo Gertz, uh, and then with our acquisition chief as well. Uh, and there are a number of claimants, if you will, across the interagency that have equity and the Arctic. But we really double down right now with the United States Navy as we look at aspirations by other nations to militarize the Arctic. Um, so we're actually – almost removing the word icebreaker, and it's a platform that conducts full-spectrum operations in an ice environment. Uh, When you think icebreaking, it just cuts a channel, Um, but it may need to do other things. So we are what we call reserving space, weight, and power if we need to militarize a heavy icebreaker. Uh, Militarize, and people say, well, what will you put on it? Uh, you know, we don't want to look at what is an in inventory today, but what might be an in inventory tomorrow. Directed energy systems. Um, it might be cyber-related and jamming systems. Uh, I, I can only speculate, but reserve the space, weight, and power so you can accommodate uh, the systems that will be coming online. Because let's face it, this these, these ships will be in service in the year 2060. Um, I don't know, my crystal ball doesn't say what the world is going to look like in 2060, but if we don't at least look at accommodating what might be the realm of the possible, uh, then we will find ourselves really missing the boat on this one, but great program. Uh, the other good news is we've released the uh, proposal to uh, five vendors. Uh, that one out uh, over a month ago. Uh, and we will down-select probably right after the first of this year to start building the first heavy icebreaker. Uh, and it's one thing to put out a proposal, but we also have the funding to award it as well. Uh, and, and some of that will be funded by DHS, some of it by DOD, and the first one will be on the waterfront in 2023.
0: So I've heard of you just in recent days, you know, I'm staying on the icebreaker piece so quickly, of... Uh... You know the potential of looking at the analysis of one block buys for the for those ships maybe call them you know maybe they're ice ice hardened cutters or whatever or they eventually become called but also potential of looking at of, instead of uh, you know shifting after three from a redesign of the heavy to a medium of, of potentially doing a, you know all through the heavy and getting that that economy of scale um do you
2: care to comment on that, on that? yeah sure um so we've uh, put language in the proposal. Um, for, for each potential vendor c- to consider block by recognizing lead ship uh, will be your most expensive ship. Economies scale, you climb that learning curve, and then the cost per unit goes down with each subsequent hull. Um, so it is the highest priority acquisition for the Coast Guard right now. We sent the Polar Star down to McMurdo. She just came back. It's our only heavy icebreaker. And if she breaks down, we have nothing in the United States inventory to get her back. In fact, we would probably have to reach out to Russia and say, can you send one of yours to bring ours home? I don't think we want to find ourselves in that precarious situation. So high priority, but then at the same time, you drive the unit cost down. But let's face it, we've been in over 50 continuing re- resolutions and several funding lapses since 2010 alone. Um, so while we face fiscal uncertainties, uh, we can navigate our way through that with a block buy. Uh, drive down the cost, build in certainty, and then also deliver these platforms on schedule.
0: Thank you, sir. Um, and with that, with the integrated uh, program office, uh, it seems to have been a fairly good success so far. Um, you know, do, do you see that as this is a stepping stone to a greater uh, coordination between the Coast Guard acquisition and Navy acquisition, and especially, as you mentioned, you know, the potential for weapon systems and direct energy weapon systems of, of leveraging – uh, these weapon systems and even sensing systems that the Navy is developing on for Coast Guard platforms.
2: Yeah, and we do that sometimes independently for our national security cutters, our offshore patrol cutters. Uh, we put what's called Navy-type, Navy-owned systems. Uh, so the C-4ISR, the weapon systems, those are all paid for by the Navy. Uh, we install them. Um, so it's been a long-standing relationship. Uh, what this will do, and depending on which vendor is awarded this contract? As the Navy is looking at building three hundred fifty-five ships, um, I, I am I am dubious whether we have enough shipyards to deliver on time that many ships. Eastern Shipbuilding, uh, we are the only military service other than the Army Corps of Engineers that is building ships out of Eastern Shipbuilding Group, um, and, and they cut us a really good deal. Um, so at the same time, what this does do is it, it provides. Better, if you will, competition for the Navy as they look at building their fleet out as well. So I really see this as a win-win for Coast Guard and Navy, uh, and then more importantly, it provides an interoperability between Navy and Coast Guard as well.
0: Thank you, sir. Um, with this, you know, looking at these, as you mentioned, some of these technologies, increased of technologies, cyber, unmanned systems, both the state and non-state actors globally, that especially in the maritime domain. Um, you know, as you look at the, the current Coast Guard and, and your plan going forward, um, do you think right now you have sufficient both capabilities and capacity uh, to address some of these issues, especially unmanned systems, as we look at our critical maritime infrastructure, uh, undersea cables, oil platforms, and our port uh, security?
2: Yeah. Um, the, the cyber realm, we are clearly under resourced. In there, we're under resourced when it comes to uh, people. Uh, we do have uh, cyber protection teams in the U.S. Coast Guard. We have a, uh, a flag officer that serves at U.S. Cybercom. Um, the J6 at the Pentagon is a Coast Guard three-star admiral, the principal advisor on all things related to C4ISR, to include cyber, to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So we, we are very well plugged in. Um, but because of these OE reductions that we have, that, that's that's the account you use to hire people. Uh, The competition for people with these skill sets is extraordinary in the private sector. Uh, We can't compete fiscally. Uh, We just cannot compete. Uh, So we need to give our folks the right tools. We need to empower them. Uh, One of the top cyber – I'll call him a warrior – is a Coast Guardsman at U.S. Cybercom. He's an E6 in the Coast Guard. And when I was briefing Admiral Rogers, he said, oh, thank you, and I won't say his name because I don't want any, anyone who doesn't have a need to know his name know who he is. But he is one of the top guys at all, all those folks that worked at Fort Meade, a Coast Guardsman. And I said, well, what do we need to do to keep you in the Coast Guard? He says, uh, don't micromanage me and just keep giving me the tools I need to do my job. Okay, I think we can do that for you. Um, So, again, I think the the relevancy of the job, giving our folks the tools, taking the time to recognize what they do as well, Um, and I think that's going to be key as well, because the the competition is going to be considerable as we look at this human talent, if you will. And uh, so we actually have a human capital strategy. I forgot to mention that one, but it does get at that recruit, train, retain piece, Uh, and, and how do you retain talent in the 21st century? Uh, Believe it or not, one of what I'm most proud of in our 18 appropriation uh, is the $15 million set aside for a child development center in California. You might say, well, what does that have to do with readiness? And and I'll tell you what it has to do with readiness. Uh, I'm I'm losing nearly 50% of my female officers at the 10- to 12-year mark. Uh, Our Coast Guard Academy right now is nearly 40% female. Uh, We've got a study ongoing right now to look at why they're leaving, um, but I certainly know talking to our junior members, when they start having a family, uh, they can't find quality and affordable child care, and so they leave the service. Um, and, and it takes years to grow back that talent for want of a child development center. So we're making investments there, but it really comes back to talent management.
0: So and on the talent piece, we're talking about personnel, um, not just maintaining, but you know as you look at some of these new mission sets, right, cyber, unmanned systems things, um, how, how are, do you see challenge there in, in what you're looking at of new skill sets that you're looking for in recruits that you're trying to bring in, and, and how are you trying to shift that recruitment to, get, to attract them?
2: Uh, what really amazes me is these are all out-of-the-box thinkers, um, and we encourage them to speak with, with radical candor. So I'll give you an example, Tom. Uh, with Hurricane Harvey, the 911 call center goes out in Houston, Texas, um, and so uh, we were we were living in social media, and it was hashtag Harvey, and people would go to that, and they saw this 800 number Coast Guard, and so when people couldn't get through to their 911 call center in Houston, they called this 800 number, which is my command center in Washington D.C. That is designed to inform cabinet officials if there's a big event. It's about a five person watch, getting a thousand calls an hour now. Wow. We are stuck on a rooftop. I need dialysis treatment. Uh, we immediately pull in 60, 70, you know, man the phones. It looked like March of Dimes. Um, but I had a lieutenant in Austin, Texas, uh, talking to their head of emergency response, and they had an application called GeoSuite, kind of like Uber. You know, and so he said, hey, if you use this, um, and the streets are flooded so you can't use it to navigate, but we can at least do heat maps, look at where these people are at, uh, and if we can get our pilots to put this, this app on, a, on an iPad, uh, we can get to them in near real time now the only thing we needed to do was i had to convince admiral rogers hey i want to bring geosuite into the dot mill domain to save lives within ninety minutes of this lieutenant calling me and getting the green light from admiral rogers on the fly we're running geosuite Um, you know it's a success when the cnn crews are now chasing down the coast guard saying they must be onto something we had anderson cooper um, in one of our H-60s, and we gave him credit for saving five of the 12,000 lives we saved. But when he landed, uh, th- there's a woman, you know, that needs dialysis treatment, and she's frustrated. No one's answering the 911 call center well. Hey, call the Coast Guard. So she does, 10 minutes later, there's a, there's a Coast Guard helicopter, a rescue swimmer, picks her up, and she's off to a dialysis treatment center. What's significant, it all began with a lieutenant letting the Coast Guard, letting Admiral Rogers know. If I was a lieutenant back in my day and said, hey, I've got a good idea, they'd say, well, when you're an admiral, you're authorized good ideas. But lieutenants, junior people are not authorized good ideas. So I mean, you've got to listen. Uh, You've got to invite that radical candor that there might be a better way to do business. The way we've been doing it may actually be obsolete. So it was a game changer for us.
0: Wow, that's an amazing story there, sir. one thing I like to go back is, is you look at uh, these changing mission sets, right? And you're modernizing the fleet, right? And you had that time period of 30 years with, with you know, between these major acquisition programs. Um, is, is your staff looking uh, to do something of looking at these growing mission sets, you know, similar to what the Navy does for their force structure assessment that says, hey, looking across, this is the numbers I need, you know, even looking to the future. And then here's, here's my long-term plan uh, to do it so I don't get those major gaps? Or are you starting to – your staff starting to look at that type of uh, analysis?
2: Yeah, and so we, we've done several things. We did a, a fleet mix analysis looking at the threats of 2000 – this was done in 2015. And, you know, the world has changed since yes. 2015 even. Um, and then at the same time, we look at, you know, as a member of the national intelligence community, you know, where are some of the emerging maritime security challenges across the world? At the same time, where might there be opportunities? The immediate opportunity we had um, in 2016 was when the wet foot, dry foot policy went away with Cuba. Um, Cuban illegal migration by sea went, th- went to zero. Um, on any given day, we had 10 Coast Guard cutters dedicated to doing nothing but apprehending illegal migrants at sea. We don't have 10 ships apprehending illegal migrants at sea right now. But I do have 12 ships when I only had two or three policing the Eastern Pacific, where most of the drugs are ultimately destined for the United States. So it allows us to, in near real time, you know, use intelligence not just where you need to operate, but also where you can afford to take some risk as well. So,
0: uh, and in your in your remarks, sir, you talked about how, um, right, the Coast Guard is operating around the world and forward. Uh, you know, for example. You know, you have cutters uh, uh, stationed up in the South China Sea, the Philippines, and some of those areas. Um, can you elaborate, you know, for our audience of um, how the Coast Guard's unique law enforcement authorities um, and some of your relationships as a as a Coast Guard, vice the Navy, um, can provide and build some of these relationships with other nations that the Navy uh, and other military forces can. Yeah.
2: So uh, they have this concept, and it's called gray power. Um, and you would think if it's gray power, it would require a, a gray ship. Um, but what's meant by gray power, you know, it, it's it's neither black or white. Um, it, it's not complete warfare, um, but at the same time, it, it's not exactly complete peacetime either. Um, and so as we look at, you know, where might we leverage U.S. influence in other regions and build partnerships? The United States, with, with a 355-ship navy, and then to include the fleet of U.S. Coast Guard, uh, still will never meet all of the maritime security challenges around the world. But by building partnerships, by, with, and through, uh, you, you build this virtual fleet, if you will. So uh, right now we've, we're doing a lot of work with uh, Vietnam, with the Philippines. Uh, in fact, uh, ships that in the Vietnam conflict were uh, at war in Vietnam uh, are, are now painted and, and where the – logo Vietnam Coast Guard uh, as we're repurposing some of our ships, but not just the ships. Uh, we're doing a lot of interaction with uh, with the Philippines, um, with Vietnam, uh, with longstanding relationship with Japan and Japan Coast Guard that's modeled after the United States Coast Guard, Indonesia, and others. You might say, well, why over there? Uh, these are some of the most committed nations that are defying the nine-dash line. So again, working by, with, and through others. And many countries don't view a Coast Guard cutter as an existential threat. Um, So we can fit through those smaller doorways that a crew des may not be able to fit through as well to at least set the stage for follow-on military to military operations. But a building block, Tom, if you will, of how do we take this relationship to a higher level.
0: Thank you, sir. So I've got enough of my questions. I want to give the audience some time here. So
2: I have two. So
0: since we're recording this we've got uh, I've got two helpers uh with mics so if you uh please raise your hand uh so you there in the back your sir so please state uh, your name where you're from and and your question uh, your involvement very uh very important and thank you for your service and thank you for coming to speak today um so you you alluded to the fact that as Uh, economic opportunities in the Arctic are going to be opened up in the next decade. Uh, Uncertainty about uh, funding and fiscal opportunity uh, might increase. Um, And I'd studied things like the Svalbard Archipelago and the treaties that govern that. Um, Would you see any value to an international agreement in which which sought to deter uh, military influence in international waters while we see what
2: sort of
1: economic opportunities the Arctic will present in in the coming years?
2: Yeah. So while we chaired the – United States chaired the Arctic Council, uh, during that chairmanship, uh, I worked with the State Department and said uh, the Arctic Council is creating policy, uh, but there's nothing to implement the policy. And I said what you really need is an Arctic Coast Guard form comprised of all eight of the Arctic Council nations, to include Russia. Um, And so – I said, I would like to host and create what is called an Arctic Coast Guard Forum so we could ultimately shape uh, an ocean that is literally opening up as sea ice retreats to address the most, I would say, relevant threats that are up there. Uh, we have more and more human activity, cruise ships plying these waters where 5% of the entire Arctic Ocean is charted to what we would call modern-day standards. The likelihood of one of these ships hitting an uncharted object in frigid cold water uh, is real. Uh, And we're still flying the International Ice Patrol, the U.S. Coast Guard today, since the sinking of the Titanic. So you've got a safety of life at sea concern. Uh, You've got rich resources up there. What if you have an oil spill like we had in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010? Um, You can't send 47,000 responders up to the Arctic. Uh, You've got accommodations for maybe 20. So what you really need is at-sea-staged response capability and not shore-based responsibility. You have a northern migration of fish stocks. There's a moratorium against fishing in the Arctic. Uh, We are a world population of just over 7 billion right now, and about 3 billion of those people subsist on fish as their source of protein. We're going to grow by 2050 to a world population of 20 of of 10 billion assuming nothing changes so where does that protein come and then where do you go to get it from a moratorium in and of itself with no teeth means distant water fleets will look elsewhere to include the arctic so you've got all of these and what's happening at the same time uh, i was up in shishmaref it's a village north of the arctic circle it's on an island Um, And what strikes you when you first get there are the homes literally toppling into the ocean. You've got 30 communities north of the Arctic Circle uh, that are in danger of literally falling into the ocean. Uh, As sea ice retreats and also as sea level rises, uh, these are the first victims, if you will, of climate change. So that is happening while all of this plays out at the same time. And If you want to ask me about that topic of climate change, I'll be happy to share my observations with you on that as well. So hopefully that answers your question. Thank
0: you. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, sir, sort of there with the tie and, and the right there. Uh, Al Regnery, uh, excuse me, i One, oh, sorry.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, Al Regnery is my name. I'm the chairman of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, and I did serve in the Coast Guard a long time ago. Actually, by my calculations, I think before you even went to the academy. Um, I wonder if you could talk about drug interdu- interdiction. Um, in the Eastern Pacific, as you mentioned, particularly um, what, you, what role you play, what gets through, and how that fits in with the whole question of border security that we hear so much about.
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So um, first of all, I, I wear a couple of hats. Uh, and one of those is I, I chair the interdiction committee uh, at the Office of National Drug Control Policy uh, to synchronize and coordinate the efforts of all law enforcement against illicit you know, transnational criminal organizations. Uh, and then looking at what are the right metrics. Uh, it isn't how many drugs did you seize. I go back to the example of you know, the, the correlation between drug trafficking, violent crime, and, and and flagging failing prosperity in Central America. So we've got that piece of it going on. The other is, as common out of the Coast Guard, working with our State Department, Uh, to broker these 41 bilateral agreements that level the playing field. Uh, In years past, when I was out in the fleet, you you would pursue a vessel, but it would enter the territorial sea of a foreign country, and you'd have to break off. You couldn't chase. You lost jurisdiction. Well, now we've leveled the playing field, and we can pursue it right up to the beach of all of these signatory countries. And not just pursue, but use up to deadly force to stop it. Um, And then work, again, through State Department. Where do we hold venue? Uh, in Mexico right now, and in Honduras, the prosecution rate in these countries is less than 5 percent. It's 100 percent back here in the United States. So we want to extradite these folks, but not just extradite them. We want to get all the pocket litter as well. Eighty-five percent of our interdictions right now are queued by some form of intelligence. Um, so gone are the days where it was like mowing a lawn and and combing your way back and forth, hoping you stumble on the crown jewels. Uh, We vector planes, ships to a known threat. Uh, Our challenge is we don't have enough resources to go after all of the known threats. Um, And then we're using other technologies on on our ships. We're using small unmanned aerial systems. Uh, When they first showed up, our older captains said, what are we supposed to do with these toy airplanes? Again, we turned to our junior members and said, well, hey, instead of us charging over the horizon, making a bunch of noise, because when we do, they, they pitch the drugs, they pitch the electronics, um, and the boat is clean when, fortunately, we can get video and maybe build a case there. Uh, instead, we launch these very covert, small, unmanned aerial systems, and we can track them for as many hours as it takes until, eventually, these are human beings that need to stop and sleep. And their wake-up call is the United States Coast Guard, speaking in <coughs> perfect Spanish, seizing, preserving the crime scene, the drugs, the electronics – that lead to one case and then the next case after that. So 2016, record year for drug removals ever. 2017 broke 2016's record. Now the problem is when the peace accord in Colombia went into effect as they were negotiating that in 2015, aerial eradication in Colombia stopped. And right now you have the highest cultivation of coca at any time in history coming out of Colombia. That needs to stop and the way to stop it is you resume aerial eradication. Then there are other methods and techniques you can use as well. Um, How does, you know, two days ago, we seized uh, over a ton and a half of cocaine 600 miles west of the Galapagos Islands. Why are we chasing them way out there, over 2,500 miles from where it left? They're trying to do a flanking movement around us. They're coming out of rivers in Tamaco, Colombia. Uh, We need better policing by the Colombians in their riverine systems. Be happy to help them there. That's where the precursors come up and the finished product goes out. And then the last piece of this is we need to get our hands around our drug addiction problem in the United States. 2016, 64,000 deaths in the United States due to drug overdose. The numbers just came in from CDC. It's now 66,000 in 2017. The needle's moving in the wrong direction. In 2016, about 10,500 of those deaths were cocaine-related, and fentanyl was also being introduced into cocaine as well. That is a weapon of mass destruction, fentanyl and carfentanyl. It's not moving by sea. The heroin is not moving by sea. Um, They can move it in small quantities uh, in what I would call mules, people walking through our border checkpoints that that are secreting these drugs, With all the vehicles coming through our border checkpoints, you can't stop 100%. But if they go into secondary screening, trust me, our border patrol will catch and apprehend these folks. But we we need to approach this from a law enforcement, but also from a behavioral health, and and it really needs to be a coordinated campaign. So it's my job really to be, you know, how do we synchronize law enforcement? What authorities do we need? But at the same time, you know, we have a, a health crisis on our hands at the same time.
0: So just that. one follow-up, as you touched on the fentanyl. You know, I was at Sierra Space this week, and uh, one of the panels was talking about the fact that uh, I believe eighty percent of you know the fentanyl, synthetic fentanyl, is made in China and then transported to South America and into the United States that way. And a lot of it is even being mailed in packages. Um, I don't know if you touch on how how you kind of counter that that piece with uh, coming from China and coming
2: in. Yeah, um, I, I give China a lot of credit. They've stepped up their game um so much so that now we're seeing fentanyl being produced in mexico by the by the cartels there um, and what's insidious about this when uh, commissioner bratton was chief of the new york city police department uh and they have a, it calls opstat opioid and so we sat on, on one of the briefings and in the 122nd precinct uh the precinct chief was saying yeah we just had this new heroin and it has a stamp on it, it said new arrival Uh, And when new arrival hit the streets in the 122nd precinct, there were 16 overdose deaths in three days. And on the fourth day, people are flocking to say, where do we get this new arrival? If it's so good it will kill you, this has got to be good stuff. And those who overdosed didn't know what they were doing. They were inexperienced heroin users. I mean, that that is the thought process that goes into it. it. It defies human logic, but this is a very difficult addiction cycle to break, but, but that is a challenge that we, we face out there right now. So, even though I'm common on the Coast Guard, I look at so what other medical interventions are out there? Uh, Subbufrine, it's an injectable and it's time delayed. Um, you might say you're replacing one addiction with another. It's good for 30 days um, and you can function. Um, you don't use methadone you know, every day and go through the same behavioral cycle as though you're a heroin user. So how do you try to step some of these people down? But there might be other medical interventions that need to be explored uh, of how do we reduce these numbers of you know, needless deaths that cross every demographic in our nation today. Thank you, sir. Next question. Right there. Hey, I'm, I'm from Georgetown University, and a major in medical policy. I have two questions for you. The first is what the... What are the six consequences of lowering the standards of recruitment? The second is, how does the Coast Guard improve its energy efficiency through renewable energy? Okay. Uh, well, on the first uh, one, we, uh, we have held probably some of the highest standards when it comes to recruitment. Uh, we do not take uh, GEDs, for example. You must have a high school diploma to enter the United States Coast Guard. The only GED candidates are those that have either associates or bachelor's degrees because they went on to college after getting their GED. Um, Our recruiters uh, take each of our potential recruits out on a run. Uh, We don't want to find out when they arrive at basic training uh, that they are not physically fit. Uh, And so we're looking at a 25% of our nation's population between 17 and 24 meet what we would say the minimum requirements to serve in the United States military. And I don't want the 25th percentile. I want that top 5 percent, but so does everybody else. Um, So it it is competition out there, but we have not had to lower our standards. Um, And at the same time, we're looking where we haven't looked at in the past. We're looking at inner cities. Um, Our Coast Guard Academy is 33 percent underrepresented minorities. It was less than 1% when I entered the Coast Guard Academy in 1973. Very capable. Um, but if you are a minority member showing up at, a, at an institution and you are the only one there, and maybe you're more than qualified, but you just don't feel welcome. So we've broken the crucible, if, if you will, on that to draw in you know, the demographics of our entire nation within that 25%. Um, Then when it comes to renewables, um, we're looking at fuel efficiency that goes into the propulsion systems of our new ships. Uh, The last ship I commanded on on turbines, yeah, we burned two thousand gallons an hour to go really fast. You're not going to go very fast very long because you're going to run out of fuel. Um, So we're even looking at combined uh, slow diesels and then high-speed turbines, and if you don't need to go fast. Uh, but you need to go far. You know, you can cut back on your fuel consumption um, and, and get there as well. Moving things like dedicated ballast, um, you know, we want to leave a green footprint wherever you go. The Coast Guard is really the regulator when it comes to environmental standards on the oceans, um, and we, Coast Guard, want to be role models for that as well, um, whether it's ballast water or even the emissions coming out of our, our stacks. Um, so, uh, I, I, can't, I can't say that we're going solar, but we, we are the only service that uses wind power. Coast Guard Cutter Eagle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, we have time for uh, a one, sale training one more question.
1: Uh, David. Hi there, uh, David and Sarah of the Heritage Foundation. Um, you mentioned the um, fleet mix analysis and also the program of record a couple of times. Um, I was wondering, wondering, given many of the threats that you have to face around the world. Um, does the program of record, uh, does it need to change, does it need to be updated to reflect the new threats that we face in the world? Uh, and, and if so, in what ways? Yeah.
2: Um, so we've seen a, a program of record for our national security cutter. Originally it was eight. Um, and now we've got 11 of these on budget. Um, and sometimes, you know, they, they, they literally pay for themselves. Um, on its maiden voyage, the Coast Guard cutter Hamilton more than paid for itself. Um, just not just in drugs removed. Um, on that same maiden voyage, they interdicted over a thousand Cuban migrants. On that same maiden voyage, uh, they were the first to arrive on scene when Hurricane Matthew devastated uh, Haiti. Uh, all on its maiden patrol, and a ship that's going to be in service for, for not less than thirty years, um, and so. Congress has said, wow, this is a great return on investment. Even though it wasn't in our program of record, they said we're going to put a ninth national security cutter on budget. They're not going to offset our budget. They're going to score the money and lift our budget to buy a ninth and then a tenth and then eleventh. And so if you're being gifted a national security cutter, you're probably not a very smart commandant if, if you are refusing acceptance of a a gift of that value what we are asking for though is uh we need to maintain the gift as well um you know we need the maintenance money in the out years not just the initial acquisition up front so you may have a program of record but let's face it you know we don't live in a static environment right now in fact i can't think of a time where if you were to walk your way around the world um i don't think you can go from one continent to another Uh, where you can see tranquility about ready to break out. Um, And many of these countries uh, look to the United States, you know, to be that stabilizer, if you will, whether you're talking NATO, uh, whether you're talking the DPRK, Western Hemisphere, um, and all things in between. Um, And yes, we are very committed as a nation, the United States. I couldn't even imagine what world order would look like without the United States. Uh, Richard Haas has written a great book. Uh, He's the head of the Council of Foreign Relations on world order. He paints a very grim picture, um, and it is. uh, But at the same time, where would world order be today without the United States? And even more importantly, where will it be tomorrow? Um, And much of this goes all the way back to Alfred Mahan uh, when he first wrote Sea Power. Um, you You know, you cannot be an influencer of world order Um, unless you can influence from a position of strength. And we are fortunate that we, the United States, have the best military, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard on the face of the earth. Thanks.
0: Admiral, thank you for all your comments today. I'd like to thank our audience both here and uh, and online uh, for uh, attending and watching today. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks,